Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your coach, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you. Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show. Very excited for you today. A long-term friend of mine, very, very special guest, is joining us, and it's Mr. Tony Schwartz. And if you've been to any of my events, if you've listened for a long time, you've heard me talk about Tony. Tony's a many-time-over New York Times best-selling author. He's the founder and CEO of The Energy Project, which is a consulting firm that helps high-level individuals and organizations more skillfully manage their energy in a world relentlessly rising demand of complexity. We all know that. Tony began his career as a journalist, and he began as a reporter for the New York Times. He was a writer for Newsweek and a contributing writer to the New York Magazine and Esquire. Since then, he's written extensively about leadership, transformation, the modern workplace. A brilliant guy. Tony's the author of six books, including my most endorsed books of my career, is The Power of Full Engagement, which is all about managing your energy, not just your time. It spent 28 weeks on the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Another fabulous book of Tony's is The Way We're Working Isn't Working, another New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. Tony graduated Phi Beta Kappa from the University of Michigan, and he's married to Deborah, and Deborah's a psychoanalyst. And I remember going to their home in New York years ago, and I could tell Deborah was psychoanalyzing me the whole time And I think she gave the nod at the end, this guy might be okay, and that Tony was able to proceed. Tony's got a wonderful family, two beautiful daughters, four grandchildren. Tony, welcome to the show, my friend. Likewise, Brian, and thank you for that very kind intro. (laughs) My pleasure. Well, uh, before we dive in today, let's start with a little of your backstory. You know, let's talk about where you're from. What was it like growing up in the Schwartz household, and how did you ultimately end up being a writer? Yeah, great. So I'm a New Yorker by birth and throughout most of my life. Lived in New York City when I was growing up and when my wife and I had our first child, but uh, have since moved just slightly out into a part of the Bronx. And if people uh, don't know the Bronx, they will think about it in a certain way. But this this Bronx is, uh, as you as you saw when you came to visit yep. me, this is this looks more like a suburb. So uh-huh. I live in what looks like a suburb, but I'm very close to the city. And uh, yeah, growing up, wow, that's a complicated uh, that's a complicated <laughs> answer, Brian. You yeah, know, no, you know that when you ask me that question, and I'm going to say it fairly simply. I grew up with a very very powerful mother who was a uh, social activist and very very uh, successful in the in the world. She was a really tough mother, uh, Brian. And the reason that I became a writer is in significant part in an effort to distinguish myself from my mother, to have some calling card of my own because she took up a lot of oxygen. Right. And I wanted to be able to do something individual, creative, And I failed at virtually everything that I tried before writing. You know, I couldn't paint. I couldn't play music. I I, I wasn't a very good dancer. So I got a a 11th grade teacher who saw a free essay I wrote and wrote at the bottom of it, you're a born writer. Mm -hmm. 
And from that moment on, I had no other interest. Yeah. Well, it's funny how that worked. A gift, affirmation, and then the right opportunity. You know, there's an awful lot of people have books. There's even a lot of people have best-selling books. But there are very few writers anymore. I've always found myself getting swept and drawn in to whatever subject matter you write on. One of the reasons I love endorsing your books, especially the powerful engagement, is people always see themselves in the book. They always get drawn in. And I think that's the talent for me. I do that from speaking, you know, where I'll have 5,000 people and someone comes away going, he was just talking to me. And I think that's what you do with writing. And people feel like you were just writing to them. When you have those natural gifts and then they're honed and refined, given an opportunity and away we go. And you've certainly done a great job on that. I want to dive in a little bit because I think it's very germane to the, the world we live in today that's become it's just a toxic environment. You know, we have a toxic news environment. You came from the news business. We have toxic politics. We have divided countries and people like that. And you have talked about negative emotions are every bit as toxic as a virus, <laughs> the virus we're dealing with now. And I'd love to kind of dive into that a little bit and how we can avoid or manage or work around the toxicity of negative emotions. Yeah, we are living in a world of extraordinary demand and uncertainty, and it's highly anxiety-provoking mm. for all sorts of reasons, which I don't have to enumerate because every person listening knows, mm -hmm. knows them and is living them. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we know is that uh, when you move into the most negative emotions, emotions like anger and frustration and fear, and you're actually moving in the direction physiologically of fight or flight. Mm -hmm. You're moving into that place where the locus of control moves from the highest part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, down further into your brain to the amygdala, which is sometimes called fear central. And what happens when you move into that state is that you lose the capacity to think. That's a pretty important capacity to have in a complex world. <laughs> and instead, what you do from a place of anger or fear is that you react. Mm -hmm. And you react defensively in the service of what you perceive as your own survival. Because once the amygdala has taken over, once you're in a state, once you're triggered, that experience of you know having a, a negative emotion just come boom right up into your consciousness. Mm -hmm. Once you're triggered, you're, you're no longer going to be connected to the parts of you that are capable of managing a complex situation, mm. and you're going to just react. So nobody is immune right now to this tendency to move in that direction. Now, some people move and turn it against the world. That's the fight part. Mm -hmm. Some people turn it against themselves, and they become either very self-critical or they get depressed or they, they hunker down and they isolate themselves. So if you think of what's going on in this COVID environment, people are feeling isolated. They are feeling worried about what the future is going to bring. And so what becomes so important during a time like this are two words, self-regulation, mm. the ability to calm your own nervous system, to take good care of yourself. And so few people find that easy to do. 
we'll do almost anything before we'll take care of ourselves. Now, I'm not talking about take care of myself by going to the store and buying something that's, you know, that I want. I'm talking about taking care of yourself in the sense that it gives you a sense of well-being. It mm-hmm. ensures that you're able to continue to show up at your best under pressure. That requires practice and specifically, and I'm sure you've talked about this on other podcasts, the, the ability to take control of the situation you're in. It's so critical, right? And, it, you know, you talk about this dynamic of isolated. You know, I, Henry Cloud, who we both know is a good friend of mine, he wrote Boundaries, and he said, solitude is restorative, isolation is depleting. And, that's and, great. You know, that's where we are right now, and it's not like when we're going for solitude, we're intentionally engaging and entering into solitude for the, like you say, the purposes of self-regulation and building our own well-being. We're reacting into isolation and that's depleting. So it's not helping our, and, and again, it's part of that fight or flight. It's part of that fight or flight and we turn down the noise and so on and so forth. And a lot of times all we're doing is delaying the inevitable. Those toxic emotions are still there and we've just kind of delayed them as opposed yeah. to retool them into, like you say, self-regulation, into our well-being. You know, it feels very hard to separate ourselves from the emotion we're feeling right now. You're talking about being triggered. You know, Irish-Italian, right? So come on, nitro and glycerin in the same body. And I've been <laughs> dealing with this my whole life, you know? And on top of that wired, you know, ready-to-go uh, type A personality, it feels hard to separate ourselves from the emotion we're experiencing. How, how can we become more aware of what we're feeling and why? Yeah, great, great question. Here's what turns out to be true. And this is really um, an understanding that's come to, to me and, and to my creative partner, who happens to be my daughter, Emily, mm-hmm. uh, over the last several years, which is something quite fascinating, I think, Brian. And you and I have spoken about it in, in before. Mm-hmm. And that is that we each believe that we're one person, one self. I'm me. Like, I'm me, I'm a, you know, in a good, I'm in a bad mood, but I'm always me. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that each of us actually has at least three separate selves that operate depending on what's going on in your world. Mm-hmm. And the answer to your question about how do you get more control of this is that when you can see it, when you can observe, self-observe, it's not just awareness, it's actually be the observer of yourself or of one of yourselves, then you have the potential to influence how that self shows up in the world. If you're good with it, I'll, I'll say a little bit about those three selves. Yeah, I think it's very powerful stuff. So what most of us aren't aware of is that we have a child self. We have a young self. And what characterizes our youngest self is its helplessness. I mean, it also has, as we know from watching children, an exuberance and innocence and mm-hmm. some wonderful qualities, but it is not capable of taking care of itself. And that child self, to a greater or lesser degree, lives on in all of us. Mm-hmm. And it gets triggered whenever it feels threatened, whenever it feels its well-being is at risk. Mm-hmm. So there's that little child 
the attitude we have toward that part of ourselves that feels weakest and most vulnerable is usually a very hostile attitude. Mm -hmm. I don't want that. I don't want to feel that. Right. I don't want to give that credibility in my life. I want to overwhelm that. I want to overcome that. I'm going to be tough. I want to stand up tall. So what actually happens when you get triggered, so somebody says something to you that feels threatening, that little child, it isn't capable of doing much about it. So you have a second self that rises up to defend you. Mm -hmm. We could call that the defender. Right. That's the, that's the survival self. We all know what our defender does when we feel under stress. It's different. You know, each person is different how, the, how you react under stress. But usually that self does, in the name of trying to help you and defend you, the you being your child, it makes a hash of it. <laughs> you know, it's like a bull in a china shop. It's a fight self. And it's like a passive, you know, not very capable self if it's the flight self. So it's all the different mechanisms we have for defense. So for me, I grew up, you know, I was small. I was put in school at three. Like I graduated high school when I was 16. My best friend didn't know my age. I, I told people I was two years older than I was my whole life. And so the way I responded to threat was by being more aggressive. You know, exactly. my best friend, he deals with it by being very passive. We respond to the threats the way we did it as a kid, right? So absolutely, right. Absolutely. So it's, we protect. We go back to it, and it's we become defensive in whatever dynamic, defensive in our posture, defensive in our language, and so we just resort back to what we know, right? We do, and it's a very primitive way of dealing with situations that require more sophistication to solve. Right. So those are the two selves that, under pressure, mm -hmm. tend to conspire to try but unsuccessfully to solve whatever the situation is. And therefore, we lose connection to a third self, which is uh, hiding in plain sight. It's our adult self. It's the most mature, capable self we have. But it gets overwhelmed by that defender. The defender sort of is taking his hand and saying, get out of my way. You know, I need to handle this. And the adult gets pushed aside. And the adult, as I was saying, for men more commonly than for women, but it can be either one, wants to push away all those feelings of vulnerability. Doesn't mm -hmm. feel that it wants to, quote, take care of that younger part of you. And so it allows the defender to run the show. Mm -hmm. But imagine if you were able to summon the adult when you're feeling under the most threat. Mm. Because we all know that when we're calm, in fact, here's a way to think about it. You have a child, whether it's your child or someone else's child, but you have a child in front of you and the child gets scared or the child starts to cry inexplicably. Mm -hmm. The adult in you instantly knows what to do, doesn't it? It's going to take care of that child. It's going to hold. I mean, we hope that must be. Right. Must, Unless we're in a bad, bad place. But the <laughs> right. adult, this tends to be in the best place that you can be. And so you have that child, your natural instinct is to take care of it. Mm -hmm. And to take care of it is, first of all, to reassure it. Mm. It's saying the adult, when it steps back into the game, says, Hey, Defender, thank you so much for your service, but I won't be needing you further 
right now. Thank you. <laughs> Sit on the bench. Sit on yeah. the bench. We're appreciative that you were trying to help right. in a tough situation, but now I'm going to take over. You can just chill. Mm-hmm. And that adult, and I can hear it as I've gotten, remember I said earlier, you can't change what you don't notice, but noticing changes everything. Mm. As I've begun over the last several years to be much more acutely aware of what I'm feeling, I can, and where I'm feeling it in my body. So for example, I tend to feel that survival self comes to knock on my door in my chest. Mm. It gets tight. Mm. For some people, their head gets tight. For some people, they turn a, you know, a, a bright shade of red. For other people, you know, they get a twitch. But mm. as you get to know it, you know, oh my gosh, that's my defender. Mm-hmm. So the question you want to be asking yourself when you start to get frustrated or angry is, what am I afraid of? Mm. What, what am I afraid of here? And I'll, I'll even say this, that beginning to be able to actively have your adult take care of the part of you that is under stress, it may even involve some visualization. For example, I've got a technique now when I'm feeling, oh, I'm, I'm starting to lose it. <laughs> I've got a technique where I bring in my posse. I call it my posse. This is just in my visual field. Mm. And my posse is five college friends who I reconnected with at the beginning of COVID, having not talked to any of them in over 40 years. And I've been talking to them once every two weeks for the last eight months. But this was really interesting. You know, and I think I told you about this. I just had this feeling of enormous comfort. You know, when you meet somebody when you're 16, Mm. 17, 18 years old, you know, that's when you make very deep friendships. Mm. But you lose them as you grow up, you move on, you get married, you have kids. And I got back with these guys and I realized that when I was with them, I just felt safe. I just felt secure. Mm-hmm. And, and I now have them in my head. And so when there's a difficult situation, I say, hey, posse, I need you. And that posse just basically says to the child, I'm going to protect you. You're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. You're going to be okay. That's what your defender needs to hear. Mm -hmm. You're going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. So what we're really talking about here, interestingly, is a kind of adult development. Mm -hmm. Now, now what do I mean by that? Childhood development, we know all kinds of things about Brian. And we know him mostly through this great guy, Jean Piaget, who develop the developmental theory about childhood. And and I'm going to summarize it for you in virtually, uh, you know, a sentence, which is as you develop, you see more and you exclude less. Mm. So a 10 year old sees more than a five year old. And you had a, you know, you were away from your house and the house caught on fire. You want the 10 year old to handle it, not the five year old. And if you were at a 15 year old, you want the 15 year old to handle it instead of the 10 year old. Mm. It's obvious. Because that older self is more capable because it sees more, it can handle more complexity. But you hit 20 years old, you hit 18, 20 years old, and that automatic process of constantly seeing more the way a child does goes way down. Mm. And the world starts to tell you when you hit that age, hey, you know, you're not a kid anymore. Mm -hmm. Grow up, be an adult. And the other thing is, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're like you and me, 
you can, you're chomping at the bit on your own anyway. Right. And so what happens is, unconsciously, you don't even make aware of this, you stop growing. You stop seeing more. Mm. And the only way to be more is to see more. Mm. It's to be able to take in more. So in adult development, which we don't have almost any academic field for, there are not many courses taught in it. People don't tell you. Every person hears about childhood development. Almost no one hears about adult development. Right. But adult development is something that can continue to happen all through your life. And one of the most powerful mechanisms for that is to develop that self-observer, that capacity to stand back from your experience and observe it without reacting to it. Mm. Because when you can do that, then you can make a decision, a choice, a, a deliberate choice about how you want to show up. So nobody stops being triggered in their life. That's going to happen in every person's life some amount of the time under some circumstances. And it should happen because if you put your hand on a hot stove, you don't want to not react. Right. Like pull that hand back as quick as you can. But what can happen, and I say this because I've seen it happen to me in such a significant way over the last several years, and I'm 68 years old. So, uh, you know, this is a late adult development in my case. <laughs> <laughs> What's happened is that I have this capacity to say from that observer place, oh, there you go again, Tony. Mm. Chill, baby. Now, now, Tony, I want to just dive into something here for a second, because Ogmandino was one of my heroes as a writer and as an influence in my life and greatest salesman in the world and all his other works. Mm -hmm. And he would tell the story in his presentations of the cat that jumped up on the hot stove. And he would say, well, the cat never jumped up on a hot stove again, but he never jumped up on anything again. Exactly. And I feel like a lot of people, they have that child, they want to protect it, they get burned. We've all gotten burned. We've gotten burned sometimes out of naivete. Sometimes we've gotten burned out of interactions with people that didn't have our best interests at heart or our emotional well-being at heart. We've had experiences where you've had, you know, recessions or businesses closed down or careers that didn't go well, personal relationships that didn't go well. And what happens is we get burned. And now we don't want to jump back on the stove for fear of getting burned. And that becomes ultimately, I think, the ultimate child defense is that hurt. I never want to go there again. How does this dynamic where, you know, you're talking about this adult development, how do we fully embrace this so we can learn to jump? We learn from, oh, don't jump on the hot stove. But, you know, I always feel like I'm most alive when I'm growing and learning. How can I get into that space where I feel alive like that? I'm jumping again, but I'm not jumping on the hot stove. I've learned from the mistakes. Yeah, and you're not avoiding the hot places right. at all costs. Right, right. So you're saying both things, right. So, you know, the most profound shift that I feel I've had in my own life, and I'm always my own living laboratory, as you are your <laughs> own living laboratory. If, it, if I experience it, then I feel I can have credibility and comfort in sharing it with others. Right. The most important thing for me was one morning when I woke up and it dawned on me in some powerful way that all the worst things that people had ever said about me and the worst things I'd said about myself 
were not only true, they were truer than I could bear to see. Wow. But they weren't all that was true. Mm. That was the shift. And so the answer to your question about how do you embrace life in the face of all the things you've named that are going to get in your way. It's counterintuitive because what worked for me was to embrace all of who I was, Mm -hmm. to be able to accept the parts of me that I had so desperately tried to avoid and deny and find ways to keep a distance from. That's not all of who I am. Mm. Is the day that I wasn't owned by those feelings. Wow. Right, let me jump in here. You'll love this. So this is the the kind of stuff that we love, right? You're you know, there's a lot of people talk about thought leaders. You're you're a man who thinks a lot and then teaches leaders. So you're an actual thought leader, which is very there's very few of them. But you'll love this from the practicum. So as a coaching organization, we see all kinds of stuff show up all the time. So we have real life stuff that shows up where people put their head down, they go to work they use our system, they start to grow in their revenues and they become more successful. And then a lot of the psychological stuff comes to the forefront. Well, we had this one lady that she was, you know, making 60 or $70,000 a year, four or five years into real estate. She gets going with our system. She has a coach that believes in her. We work through the process. Within a couple of years, she's making 400000 a year. Within a couple more years, she's making a million dollars a year. And then... We go through about 18 months with this woman where everything she could do to possibly self-sabotage her career, her finances, and her well-being, she did. She made unbelievably poor business decisions, unbelievably poor financial decisions, and just like literally built her up into a millionaire, and then she crashes on the rocks. And the coach is at their wit's ends, and we're fighting through this stuff and so on and so forth. Well, finally, I end up having a conversation with her and her coach, and we kind of grab a few minutes together. And I start digging in, and you and I are kind of wired at the same. Where's the source? Where's the source? Well, I ask her a bunch of detailed questions, n- not really knowing the three selves formally the way you've presented them, but knowing that's what's in there. And so finally, in tears, she's there, and she blurts out, my whole life I'm trying to prove my dad wrong. My whole life I'm trying to prove my dad wrong. Because her dad had said, you're never going to mount anything. You're never going to mount anything. And because she never really dealt with it, she just went to war with that. Her defender unleashed. She went to work with that. And so the truth of the matter is that when she was riding high in the back of her mind, she's telling herself the whole time, I'm never going to mount anything. I'm never going to mount anything. And then when she was making these decisions, she was making these decisions that actually were self-sabotaging herself in an enormous way. It was to actually prove her dad right. And we went through the process and really dug in with her we eventually got to this place where you've kind of crystallized in a more formal thought process, which is, okay, what is it about your dad? Why did your dad say you were never going to amount to anything? What did he see and observe? Let's say he's totally wrong about everything, but what did he see that brought up? And she brought up certain habits she had, which were not wired like her dad, she more like her mom, and the dad didn't like that stuff, and that's why. And so once we said, okay, well, here's the thing. Is that stuff true? Yeah, it is. Well, how about we deal with that stuff? And now go on her way. That woman's been with us now for 22 years in our coaching program. Mm. She now not only is successful, as part of her giving back as a multimillionaire real estate agent, she supports a house with, that houses six battered women and their children. 
at all times and gives back to the community and does little talks for them and gives them books and all this kind of stuff. And she's just a picture of this. But it wasn't until, like you're talking about, she had to go into the observation, had to recognize, no, some of what my dad said was true. He came to the wrong conclusion. He said, you're never, which is a disaster statement for a parent. But he came to the wrong conclusion. But there were some observations there. Once we addressed them, hey, that's true. But that's not all that's true. Now, that's not how we said it. But that's how we'll be saying it going forward, because that is so right on what you're talking about. And I've seen that hundreds of times. Yeah, because we have a tendency to think that the opposite of a good quality is necessarily a bad quality. Mm. So you can never acknowledge a bad quality because once you're bad, you're only bad. And to the point you were making about this woman, she is every woman. Mm. She may have been more extreme, but the part of her that we all share is the core need to feel valued. Mm. When you don't feel valued, the only thing worse is to not be able to eat or not to have shelter. Mm. But it, the need to be valued is so great in us. And the sense that each of us are vulnerable to feeling not good enough, mm. that's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here, just to tie this back to what I was saying about my own experience, so when I could say, yes, you know, the way I just behaved was bad, it wasn't a good way. And I could, in a sense, accept all of who I was and think about this, Brian, you don't have anything left to defend. Mm. So once you're not in the business of defending your value, mm -hmm. it's like a zero sum game. You're now free to take that energy and use it to create value for mm. other people and in the world, which is the only thing that ultimately is nourishing to a human being. Mm. It's not making a million dollars. I mean, listen, that's fine. Sure. But that's not going to give you an inner sense of well-being. It's right. going to give you an outer sense of well-being, which is insufficient. Right. So, so this ability to embrace the things that you find most off-putting about yourself without assuming they're the whole story, it's really powerful. Mm. And let me give you an example of where we get this wrong. So imagine that you have a quality like candor. Mm -hmm. You're honest, you know, you're straight. Mm -hmm. And we see that, that's a virtue. Yep. Here's the problem. If you overuse that quality of candor, <laughs> you know where I'm going. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> it turns into cruelty. Yep. Sure. The, the most virtuous quality overused becomes a liability. Sure. So what you actually need is you need not the opposite of candor. That's not the only option. The opposite of candor is dishonesty. Now, mm. no, no honest person wants to be seen as dishonest. Right. You think that's the only choice, then you feel trapped by the possibility that in any circumstance, you're going to be seen as dishonest. Right. Because that's going to cut your identity. You know, it's going to break up your identity. So what you really need is the positive opposite of candor. Mm. Candor, when you overuse it as cruelty, how do you moderate the tendency to be cruel with compassion? So no virtue is a virtue by itself, Brian. Mm -hmm. All virtues are entailed because any virtue that you overuse is going to turn into a liability. And the only way to actually navigate the world gracefully is to hold both 
a positive quality and its opposite, but it's it's positive opposite. So candor and compassion. Mm-hmm. So confidence and humility. Mm-hmm. Confidence overused becomes arrogance. Right. The balancing quality is humility. Right. If you can move gracefully between those, then you're not going to get stuck in this binary view of the world where you're either good or bad, right or wrong, black or white. Mm-hmm. You know, you have no movement. So that's been what, for me, has created this incredible freedom. And the freedom is manifested in the degree to which I don't feel defensive. Mm. If you say to me, Tony, you know, you can be a little over aggressive at times. You know, you're, 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 you, you can be a little controlling. I'm going to say to you, yeah, that too. <laughs> that too. <laughs> and I'm trying to manage it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm trying to manage that because I see it. I'm not just being it anymore. I see it. This is a self that arises under certain circumstances. And if I can observe it, then I can manage it. Mm. And it can show up in the world differently. That's awesome stuff. And if you ever listen into a Tony Schwartz, Brian Buffini conversations, we do hours and hours of this stuff. And it, it, rejuvenates both of us and fires us up and you know it's it's true synergy and tony you and i have talked about doing a number of these different podcasts so that we can bring messages to people this stuff is magic right the child the defender the adult self so many phenomenal one-liners and thoughts i have pages of notes written down and i had pages of notes from the last two conversations we had Here's something that I want to share with everybody. I'm a firm believer that education without implementation is merely entertainment. And even though it's the Brian Buffini show, it's not a Vegas act. And as all of you know, I'm interested in mindset, motivation, methodologies. So to kind of give you a little background, Tony and I go back a long way. I saw great skill and gift in him years ago, and I encouraged him to get into the training side of things. And he's taken on board that and then some. Your coaching is typically Fortune 1, Fortune 200 CEOs and leadership, and you've helped so many of them, those leaders with their energy and their mindset, and then put training programs into corporations. And so I represent this huge network of self-employed people. And so we're not IBM or any of your great big clients. So I've been challenging Tony. I said, I would love to have you expose folks that are self-employed, that don't have the option to tap into what the Fortune 1 and 500 companies do, and could you do something for us? And you have a program that is phenomenal called People Fuel, and you've put it on demand. It's typically only available inside corporations, but you've made a specific accommodation for us. Can you talk to folks a little bit? Because again, you're talking about being 68, growing, developing. This content has, has come out of many, many years of working through the process yourself and coaching some of the highest performers in the world. Could you talk a little bit about this People Fuel course and and what it takes people through? Thank you for that. So People Fuel is our signature program. It's been around since I met you. People Fuel is really designed to help people manage their own energy, Brian, more skillfully, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. So the quantity of your energy is the physical piece. The quality of your energy is the emotional one. The ability to take control of your attention is the mental source of energy. 
And spiritually, by that, we are talking just about the energy derived from the experience that what you do serves something larger than yourself. Mm-hmm. When you can bottle that, you've got a powerful source of, of energy to draw on. Yeah. So people fuel is really an introduction to managing yourself. And the reason that, you know, when I was thinking about what product, what would be most useful to people right now, given the, what I started out this conversation with, which is when you can quiet your own internal system, your nervous system, we call it, everything becomes possible. Your best becomes possible. It only becomes possible when there is a quiet in your system, in your nervous system. And what people fuel is designed to do is to give you a series of very practical tools that serve your ability to self-regulate. You know, you, Brian, have just said that it's practice that actually matters most. You know, everybody out there, you know, listening to this will say, well, yeah, some or a lot of that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I I wish my adult were running the show more of the time. (laughs) And I wish I weren't so often overusing one of my strengths and all of that, that where the pedal meets the metal is being able to build a practice into your life that progressively ensures that you will show up automatically with the right behavior because you're fully fueled in a given situation and particularly in a difficult situation. So people fuel on demand is 20, 20 minute lessons. It's got videos, it's got some experiences, things that you can try. And each one is, each lesson is 20 minutes. When we first did it, we did it as a 20 day, meaning if you counted only weekdays, a one month course Mm -hmm. that people would do once a day. What we learned was that people want to do it when they want to do it. (laughs) So some people want to do four in one day and Mm -hmm. it's fine. But yes, this is what we're trying to do is to arm you with both the knowledge and the strategies to take more control of your life in a time that feels out of control. Yeah, That's amazing. And, you know, in those four quadrants of physical, emotion, uh, mental, and that sense of purpose and meaning, very, very powerful. I'm not going to get into this, you know, detail wise, but if you're a CEO and you run a big company, you pay an awful lot of money for Tony's help and his team's help. We've been friends a long time. He's making a commitment to have people fuel on demand. You're the first group ever like this to get exposed to it and not be part of a corporation for 50 bucks, for 50 bucks, 20 sessions (laughs) with Tony Schwartz, with all the resources and exercises and whatever else is phenomenal. And so if you're interested in taking people fuel on demand, here's the URL and it's energyproject.thoughtindustries.com. That's energyproject.thoughtindustries.com. And then just do slash courses slash people fuel. So energyproject.thoughtindustries.com slash courses slash people fuel. And it'll be an extraordinary experience, an extraordinary experience. I've known this man a long time. And he practices what he preaches. That's why we've been friends a long time. And Tony, I just got to say this. Uh, this Your conversations are always enlightening. You're a genuine thought leader. I love this content. I, I, I can see myself in this content. I can see the child. I can see the defender. I can see the adult. And I can see when I've, when I've crossed up all those things. I can see myself as, 
Yep, that's true, but that's not all true. And uh, I, I, I think, like you, when we're developing and growing, we're actually doing something, and we're able to not only observe but have the tools and the techniques and the practices to be able to live that good life. So I want to thank you for being on the show today. I know we have other things planned. I encourage everybody to go to energyproject.thoughtindustries.com slash courses slash people fuel and participate in getting people fuel on demand. I think this is a real treat, and I'm excited for all of you to participate in. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. Send us your feedback. Send me your emails. Let me know. Tell us what you thought of today's broadcast if you want to hear more or even what you want to hear more of. And Tony and I are working on some things together. We're happy to come and share more with you. So thanks for joining us today. Tony, thank you so much. I just appreciate our friendship. I appreciate who you are and your desire to grow. You're a very young 68-year-old. That's all I will say. Bless you for saying that. And Brian, you are uh, the role model for for the practices and 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 the approach to life that we're out there advocating. So I bow to you in that respect. <laughs> well, thank you, my friend. And thanks for joining us today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope this really helps you. And to somebody who I was very, very thankful for that I never had someone in my life telling me that I'd never make it. I had the opposite. Her name was Therese Buffini. She just celebrated her 90th birthday. And almost every day of her life and my life, she told me, you can do it, Briny. You can do it. And that's one of the dynamics that helped me, that drove me, that drives me today. And so, we, as always, we're going to allow Therese Buffini to send you off with a little Irish blessing. Here's my 90-year-old mom giving you all a send-off today. May the road rise up to meet you. And may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time.